the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. When rates move higher in earnest, it won't be because the Fed wants them to. It will be to a degree that makes the Fed squirm very uncomfortably because they're going to call their friends over at the Treasury who are saying, wait a minute, you understand that interest, this line item on the national budget, interest is now creeping towards 10, 15, 20, 25% of the total of our budget. All revenue that we generate from taxes, more and more of it's required just to pay interest. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You could dream, Dave, if you wanted to, that you were the bond market instead of the gold market, you know, because you and your family have been in gold for this is going to be 50 years coming up on 2022. What if you had a guaranteed buyer? of every piece of inventory that you had. Okay, so when we keep the inventory board, what if you had a guaranteed buyer? What would the price be if you knew? You knew somebody was going to come in and buy everything always, all the time. And I'm, of course, I'm referencing the Fed right now. And, you know, when the Fed talks about market cycles, whether they're cyclical, you know, the short ones or the secular, the long ones. And, and when people try to do analysis, what they're really doing at this point with the bond market, especially and with the debt market, is they're trying to analyze something that there has been a guaranteed buyer already baked into the system. How in the world do we even look at these markets anymore? Yeah, this is the new great power where you can just choose the price and spend whatever you want to determine the price. You know, it was Bill Clinton's political advisor, James Carville, who said, I used to think that if there was reincarnation, I wanted to come back as the president or the pope or as a baseball player with a 400 batting average. But now I would like to come back as the bond market. (laughs) You can intimidate everybody and and it's true there used to be this thing in the bond market that was alive and well and it was discipline to the marketplace and that discipline has been wrecked by the fed's footprint basically taking away or temporarily stripping power from the bond market and claiming it for themselves okay so the cycle okay when we talk about cycles those are shorter term but secular in the bond market, the secular cycle can last 35 years, but that secular cycle is also affected at this point. It's been lengthened, hasn't it? And I think that's really what we're talking about is the short-term stripping of power. It's actually not a surprise that secular shifts and secular trends are ignored. You have Jerome Powell 30 years ago, who was working as the assistant secretary of the treasury, and he argued that if we're just regular about our bond auctions for predictable, the market's going to appreciate that. And we're going to continue to see a reduction in bond yields. Hmm. And, and that was back in the 90s. That's that right. was when the market was a little freer than now that Powell's at the helm. Well, and maybe it was true. But the context in 1991 was that there was a secular shift from record high yields a decade before. Right. To normalizing yields at lower and lower levels. Inflation was not as bad at that time That's as right. the 80s. It had been fading. We were entering a post 
Cold War period of labor cost shrinkage. Mm. There was diminished capital controls all over the world and an expanding free trade on every continent. So again, these are the context. These are the secular trends. And, and there's Jerome, young Jerome Powell, assistant secretary of the treasury saying, I think we just need to publish when we're going to ask for money. And that's going to drive interest rates even lower. And it's like, well, actually, Jay, there's other things in play in, in, you know, Terms were more generous for a variety of reasons. And I think, you know, again, Jerome thought that if the Treasury was clear on what it was going to do, rates would shrink. Maybe it's peripherally true. Maybe it's coincidentally true because you had those secular factors which were clearly at work. And rates have, in fact, come down for a combined total of 40 years. Hmm. That's one of the longer cycles, too, isn't it? It was secular cycles. Rates coming down 40 years. Uh, isn't it normally in the mid-30s? The average interest rate cycle in the U.S. is in the 30s. Uh-huh. And the shortest is a 22-year cycle. So okay. we are now, this is now the longest, if we're averaging numbers, this is now the longest interest rate cycle we've had. But right? when the central bank wants to exert pressure on prices different than what the cycle would actually yield, uh, pun intended. It, you know, then it does change the look. Yeah. And I guess a part of what is in play is unnatural. Putting in a low in rates and a high in bond prices Artificial. has had, yeah. it's had less to do with secular trends and more to do here recently with central bank strong arming mm-hmm. of market dynamics. So when the ECB, the Fed, the PBOC, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England and others decide that they want to fix prices at a high level in order to fix the cost of debt at an artificially low level, the secular trends go out the window and in their place, albeit temporarily, comes the market fix. Okay. And that goes to the guaranteed buyer question that I had right off the bat. Yeah. And the Financial Times this week said the same thing. It's hard to have rational price discovery, they said. It's hard to have rational price discovery on an asset with a guaranteed buyer. <laughs> so right. is Powell willing to remove himself and the Fed from the equation? I mean, when we when we talk about taper, when we talk about beginning to raise rates, you know, we're basically saying we're going to get out of the way and let the market do its thing. Look at the numbers involved, though. The 30-year bond is yielding under 2% with inflation a full 3.4% above that number. Mm-hmm. Above that number. So we're talking about in the fives. Right? So you're, you're negative already. I mean, might yeah, suggest, Taylor rule is out the window. Yeah, might suggest to the rational investor that letting go of the bond market fix and letting secular trends reemerge might be too consequential for the markets and too high a price for the Powell Fed to pay. Okay, but what Powell would basically say at this point is the inflation that you just quoted, Dave, don't you worry about it. It's transitory. It won't be here. It may be here today, but it's not here tomorrow. And it's wonderful if true. And it's painful if it's not, particularly for investors that have continued to maintain the belief that central banks direct markets instead of the contrary. These are articles of faith. <laughs> they really are. When you think about how the world is constructed and what makes the, the world go round, central bank policies may coincidentally be moving in lockstep with a larger reality. But there can be some confusion between secular market causes and effects. And there is the belief, at least sponsored by the Fed, that they are the ones in control of the outcomes. And I appreciate the cheeky description of of the U.S. bond market by the Financial Times contributing editor. He says that treasuries are a special rational 
bubble. <laughs> There's yeah. so many special things these days. But doesn't that also push money over into other assets? And artificial can go both directions. You can have artificially high stock prices if you've got artificially low yields on bonds. And that goes back to the risk-free rate. We've often bemoaned the fact that the most important market signal, the quote-unquote risk-free rate, is muted when you start controlling bond prices, obviously. And, and all sorts of misallocated capital gets thrown into other assets, non-bonds, non-bond assets that, that didn't deserve the time of day, but nevertheless see excess liquidity gush and flow into them. So did you go to the website? Okay, we talked about this. We talked about this digital rock that you can buy for several million dollars if you want, Dave. They only made a 100 of them. They're digital rocks. They exist only on the screen, and when you go to their website, it basically says, uh, now this has no real function other than for you to sell it to somebody else at a higher price. That's amazing. It, there is no function. So we talk about assets. If I can't earn or keep up with inflation uh, on government bonds, let's say, maybe I'll just buy a digital rock, and it, I'll be the only guy who has it. Maybe I can put it on my thumb drive and walk around with it. I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, which basically said, gold's nothing more than a pet rock. That was the accusation at the time. Never mind the fact that it's been treated as, as like the core of monetary systems going back four, five millennium. Right. So ether rock is ether rock. scarce yeah. like gold is scarce, right? Yeah. No, not actually. Not actually exactly like. So, yeah, you can buy an image of a rock. It's a digital one. Not a one-of-a-kind image, but you can buy it for a couple million. I think it was 2.2 something mm. million dollars. And if the tulip bulb mania seem to be touched by madness. The idea of paying years worth of wages or an entire fortune for a single tulip bulb. What is it that's touching the minds of the non-fungible token investor? So you've got billions of dollars which have now come into this little space and utility is not a consideration. Beauty is not a consideration. You might say, well, no, but it's art. Not really. Cash flow is not a consideration. It's only speculation right. that the price tomorrow will be higher than the price today. Greater fool. Yeah, that's the true consideration. And it's irrational exuberance. Actually, that's too kind a reference for the greater fool strategy that's employed for the non-fungible token investor. Dave, this is a point where we need to re-recommend a book because I don't know that we've talked about this in the last few years. So for the newer listener, get Extraordinary Popular Delusions the and The Madness of mm -hmm. Crowds by a guy named uh, Charles McKay. Yeah, it was written in the 1850s. So this is not new material. And he goes back. But when you brought up tulip bulb mania, I'll never forget one of the stories. You remember the story of the tulip bulb? that one of the sailors on the ship they were bringing you tulip bulbs at that point were worth hundreds of thousands of today's dollars okay because it was like these uh, digital rocks because everybody thought so and one of the sailors ate the tulip bulb i didn't realize you could eat a tulip bulb but it's a little bit like i guess an onion or something so he ate it the tulip bulb that he ate was worth more than the ship <laughs> that brought it over. Okay. Now, of course, the, the end of the story is when you go to the Netherlands today, the tulip bulbs are back to normal price, what they should be. What a surprise. Yeah. I wonder what Ether Rock will ultimately be worth. 
probably what it's worth intrinsically too. I, you know, Powell, if he were operating in the sphere of reality today, he might reflect as he did 30 years ago on the value of predictable behavior. And, and if he did, what he'd see is that market participants are gaming his information flow. They're gaming the predictable behavior of central, the central bank community. Mm-hmm. And every speculator is willing to keep the dance music pumping, the, 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 the beat thumping and prices jumping so long as excess liquidity is still on offer. And so that's what he should be reflecting. So you're talking like the reverse repo market. You're talking about the, the money that they're just feeding into the system at this point what, by the trillion. What that reflects is that there's way too much money in the system. Hmm. We know there's too much money in the system. The reverse repo market with overnight operations consistently over $1 trillion is, is now a clear illustration of the Fed's excess liquidity creation. And, you know, it's unable to find a legitimate home. So, you know, you've got banks stymied in the credit creation process outside of those areas we've talked about in previous shows, the underwritten and, and sort of risk-free loan program sponsored by the government. But this isn't for farms or factories. This is for speculation. This is for pet rocks right. on your computer. Yeah. Demand for money for productive purposes is low. Demand for money for speculative purposes has never been higher. So exhibit A for lunacy is the non-fungible token world. Mm-hmm. Exhibit A for excess liquidity is the reverse repo market, again, consistently above a trillion dollars overnight. Exhibit B, C, and D on the liquidity front we'll discuss in a minute because we're going to come back to the to the Z1 report, the quarterly report. So if we go back to lunacy, returning to lunacy for a more familiar kind, you know, consider the S&P 500. We're at one and a half percent of all-time highs, right? We're near one and a half percent of all-time highs. And margin debt is taking out the old records. Mm-hmm. It was higher by 8% in August to $911 billion. <laughs> you look at 911 and you wonder if somebody might subconsciously worry after looking at the number. Like a call 911, the market's ablaze with irrational energy. Mm. It's it's just interesting because never have so many people been so confident gambling with someone else's money. We just came out of our weekly staff meeting and uh, someone was talking about, you know, China uh, outlawing Bitcoin and Bitcoin coming down. And, you know, it's just interesting, Dave. I remember the 1987 crash before the crash and everything seemed to people who weren't seeing it as if it was going to continue to go up. And then we had the, the greatest crash since 1929. We could say the same thing about the tech stock bubble. It was like, this doesn't even feel real. Let's remember what this was like when this thing crashes. Well, it did. 2008, the same type of thing. It feels like that right now. We need to we need to encourage each other to remember. We're going to remember these digital rocks someday. And we're going to say there were actually people who believed that they had value. Yeah, and, and I... I guarantee you there's the same trends in play with the U.S. government as there are with the Chinese government today. Uh. You know, can't mine digital currencies. That was the first stage. Now you can't trade them. Now, it's not to say you can't own them. You just can't do anything with them. Right. So keep them happily on your thumb drive and, and you're in trouble if you do anything with it. If you take it to an exchange and try to trade it for another currency, whether it's a digital currency or an actual fiat, uh, you're in trouble. But you're right. Remember, Remember you were there. Yeah, we need to remember. And these behaviors and allocation choices to non-fungible tokens, to cryptocurrencies, with even even stocks and bonds, they were normalized by the media. 
they were normalized by brokers and money managers. I mean, to the point where things that historically have been a great guide, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratios, you know, if it's above 20, you pay attention. If it's above 30, there's alarm bells going off. We're now at 38, right? Hmm. Even as structural economic changes were shifting in the backdrop, we should remember, right, a move away from capital to labor. That's happening on a global basis. With wages increasing, Mm -hmm. it's very clear that corporations, Wall Street, and their minions are now being pressured, right? Wage pressure is now solidly on the rise, a diminishment in global cooperation and trade. These are firmly entrenched structural economic changes. And it's almost as if we've just watched and we're still celebrating the turkey's happiest day, right? That's behind us. Right, the day before Thanksgiving. Yeah, he's stuffed and awaiting slaughter. Okay, that takes us to inflation because something that's always blown my mind is when you have high inflation based on the fact that you've printed trillions of currency – People don't generally see that. What what will happen? Because we're experiencing inflation. You mentioned wages. Wages aren't transitory. How often does somebody say, well, we're going to cut your wages back because inflation's a little bit lower? That, that never happens. But look, you know, with uh, with a lot of the supply chain problems, that probably, Dave, if in five or ten years, if we go through a really high inflation period, which we probably will, they're going to look back and they're, they're going to say, well, it really had more to do with supply chain than it did printing of money. Yeah, but we've had monetary policy, which has been very loose, obviously, and that's led to asset price inflation. We've had fiscal policy, which has been very loose, and that's contributed to consumer price inflation. And you're right. There's going to be sort of a retelling of, of history. But look, it's it's now the end of September, and it's odd But you just said supply chain bottlenecks are going to be written into this part of history. Mm -hmm. Supply chain bottlenecks, which were assumed to be the primary cause of transitory inflation. They're still here. They're still here. Yeah. I mean, you've got global automotive companies. They've doubled the expected impact of microchip delays. Again, this is a supply chain issue. Originally, it was thought to to have increased their their costs and, and decreased their, their their revenues by fifty to sixty billion dollars on a global basis. But they expected it to be revolved. resolved. Resolved. They expected it to be resolved within months. More recently, that number it's no longer sixty billion. It was increased to one hundred and ten billion, and now it's almost doubled to two hundred and ten billion in revenue depletion hmm. as the costs continue to rise. And yes, the shortages remain. So we're still dealing with the supply chain bottlenecks, but we're also now dealing with a bunch of other things as well. So finished goods that are making their way from Europe and Asia to American shores, they're stuck offshore. Mm-hmm. Between a lack of longshoremen and a lack of truckers, there are too few workers moving products, and thus you've got logistics and transport costs moving higher in lockstep with wages also on the increase needed to bring people out of the woodworks and actually get stuff done. So on that point, you know, imports. You've got the current account deficit, which hit a 14-year high, $190.3 billion for the last quarter. In a quarter, single quarter. <laughs> the, yeah. These are these are on par with the numbers that we saw in 2007. Yeah. So, Remember what they said, though, back then? Deficits without tears. Well, and that goes back to even the 60s and 70s, where the contention was you can't do this forever. You can't do this forever. And, and I think it's without tears until the tears flow involuntarily. So that brings me back to wages, though, because you've already got large companies like FedEx, you know, 3M, they're already saying they're having to raise wages. They've been warning about inflation. They've been talking about the costs. Once you raise a wage, like I asked earlier, 
can you really adjust wages back down when inflation starts coming back down? There's certain prices you can move up and move down. So if, you know, corn checks see, you know, a bushel of corn go higher, yeah, you may bump the cereal box higher by 25%, or you may just shrink the box. You know, there's lots of ways of addressing that. And if you want to bring it back down, you can. And you got commodity price volatility, which is constant. But Dave, you're an employer of right. many people. Right. You raise a wage. There's nothing more demoralizing than saying, oh, I'm sorry, taking that back. Yeah. You, you'll have to be happier with less. Now, everyone's always happier with a little more. I, I, I understand that. But once the commitment has been made on wages, there is something very deleterious to morale when- If you called it transitory. If you call wage inflation transitory, <laughs> you've yeah. got issues. Yeah, you've your paycheck issues. was transitory, by the way. That's that's right. So the issue with wages, by the time they start to move, it's the stickiness in sticky price inflation. Right. Right. You know, again, a new round of repricing of goods, which factors in higher input costs. And then you have the new higher level for consumers to get used to. All these things are very important. FedEx cut its full year earnings per share estimates on higher operating costs. Mm -hmm. We already talked about 3M a few weeks ago. These are bellwethers, Kevin. These are these are worth watching because you're talking about logistics and material costs and labor. Mm -hmm. But note that the conversation is no longer strictly about supply chain concerns, labor, logistics, material costs, right? It's all of a sudden C-suite participants that are sensitive to these issues, right? CFOs, COOs, CEOs, but the Fed is stuck on being right, and they can't seem to see inflation anywhere other than where they're choosing to look for it. And that's what they tell us. I mean, they can't be that stupid, can they? No, I, I don't think they are. But I mean, last month's CPI number, lower than the month before, that's all they needed. You know, you're like, oh, look, hotel room rates fell 2.9%. Look, look, used car and truck prices are down 1.9%. Wall Street gets emboldened with this notion that Okay, well, maybe the Fed's right. It's transitory, and, and we're beginning to see this receding of increases in inflation. But think, I mean, think about FedEx. As you said, it, it, it's difficult to lower wages. $450 million in increased wages. That, that's, I mean, FedEx is going to take a hit to their numbers in part because of $450 million in increased wages. Is that transitory? Mm -hmm. When was the last time employees were happy to take a pay cut? Raise it, and it's stuck there. Costco's conference call this week. Labor costs, <laughs> front and center. Freight costs, container shortages, port delays. I mean, so there are still the factors of supply chain issues. But they go through a long list of products that they're having to bring in at between 5 and 11% increase in cost. And that does not include any of their meats, right? So th these are all low double digits, but you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're moving into the teens, right? Okay. So I want to go back to what Financial Times said when we were talking, okay, I started the program saying, if you had a guaranteed buyer. Now, what I mean by that, because we've seen this in Europe as well with the European Central Bank, the bonds, the yields on bonds don't have to go up if they know that the government's going to just buy them, okay, and buy everything. But something seems to be changing. Uh, you know, Jim Deeds, I remember he told me this. You know, Jim has been a guest on the program, worked here for a while, has been a friend of your dad's really since the late 60s. Uh, Stockbroker, uh, very, very connected guy. And he said, Kevin, he said, when they can't keep interest rates down. When inflation is going up and interest rates start going up and it's no longer completely in the Fed's control, that's it. 
Game's up. The power of the Fed is not in the money that they spend, but in what they project. And it is a, it is a persona. They have the control, or do they? And as long as you, the market participant, believe they have the control, then they do. And you've seen this happen with the ECB. The ECB it really is says, the curtain with us. It, you know, yeah. pay no attention. We will buy in any quantity the number of bonds necessary to keep rates lower. So you the see German boons. Mighty Oz. Do you remember German yeah. boons just a few months ago were negative 60 basis points. Now they're negative 20 basis points. There is the market perception. And again, we're, we're talking hmm. about almost a non-existent yield. I appreciate the fact that these are 10-year negative rate, negative rate. Yeah. But and, and this isn't a real rate. This is the nominal yield is, in, you know, is negative 60 basis points. Now it's negative 20 and change. But it's creeping up. It's creeping up. Yeah. As the reality gets into the minds of the market participant that, wait a minute, Will the ECB always be the buyer of last resort? Will the Fed always be the buyer of last resort? Is it always going to be profitable to front run the next QE initiative? So is that happening here, not just in Europe? You know, it's too early to say, but I know last week the bond market appeared to change its tune and direction with some sensitivity to inflation, right? So 10-year treasuries backed up with yields moving towards 1.46%. I think what you saw last week was the bond market and the man in the street seeing the world, or at least the speculator, seeing the world from a similar perspective, not the perspective of the Fed. Yet bonds and energy, which were moving in tandem, suggesting that the market knows what is going on, even if the Fed is not looking where they could or should look, right? The New York Fed reports consumers' expectations on inflation, which is it's a different measure. Again, consumer expectations are different than their preferred measure, PCE. It comes out later this week. And this number from the New York Fed is important because, you remember, expectations guide outcomes. Right. And those expectations are above 5% for this year. This is the public. The public uh, that's expecting. Right. And yeah. above 4% for the following three years, right? And that's well above the Fed's target of two. You know, that probably goes without saying. And it's also well above the current rate structure <laughs> with the 30-year yielding right around 2%. So expectations have shifted. And so we would argue the die is cast. Okay, but let's take the other side of it. The person who's out there speculating is saying, hey, the Fed's got our back. It's worked. It's worked for the last decade since the last global financial crisis. Why wouldn't it keep working? It's an article of faith. It's an article of faith. Some still believe the Fed controls the bond market. Some still believe that the Fed controls inflation. Some have the belief that the Fed controls economic growth rates. But I think there's a few more investors each day that are figuring out that secular trends define a course. And central bank activity is almost coincidental to those market-driven forces. Certainly there's time frames, short-term time frames, where market forces can be manipulated. Mm -hmm controlled, even bullied. But just for the short run, right? not the secular trend. Ultimately, those market-driven forces overwhelm even the best-intentioned policy course. Hmm. So when rates move higher in earnest, it won't be because the Fed wants them to. It will be to a degree that makes the Fed squirm very uncomfortably because they're going to call their friends over at the Treasury <laughs> who are saying, wait a minute, you understand that interest, this this line item on, on, on the national budget Interest is now creeping towards 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of the total of our budget. All revenue that we generate from taxes, more and more of it's required just to pay interest, right? So the conversation about 
interest rates going higher and the back and forth between the Fed and the Treasury. I think it's going to get very interesting in the coming years. You know, there's a saying that says, tell a lie long enough, then the people will believe it. But you can only do that when the lie is relatively close to the truth. Do you think inflation at this point is going to be something, you know, anybody who hears what the Fed says is inflation, you talk to somebody who goes to the grocery store and they just laugh. Right. Inflation rates at present are likely the shot across the bow. You've got Fed credibility implosion, which is closer by the day. There's a host of ramifications from that. If you're talking about financial market liquidity, if you're talking about asset price volatility, very significant when that credibility bubble bursts. Well, this is a good time to probably go back and say, you know, you can listen to the commentary every week and hopefully get good information. But Dave, you've been very generous in offering things that high value. If if somebody wants more deep insight into some of the, you know, like you said, you know, inflation being a shot across the bowel. Well, rather than just talk vaguely about something, you can actually get detail from the credit bubble bulletin. The Hard Asset Insights, all of this is offered for free on the McIlvaney Wealth Management website. So I would recommend, you know, I recommended the book earlier, Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds. That is a, the first three chapters is a must read. But on a weekly basis for the person who wants to dig deeper, I mean, Doug Noland, we've talked about him before. I, I still pinch myself that he actually works with us. Yeah, we don't bombard your inbox with you know email after email. So the benefit from Hard Asset Insights or, or Credit Bubble Bulletin, to benefit from that resource, you gotta go get it, right? So Hard Asset Insights is only a few years old. Credit Bubble Bulletin dates back 20 plus years. And so for the financially curious, for the historically inclined, for the, for the seeker, um, you know, I tout Hard Asset Insights and Credit Bubble Bulletin because they're valuable resources that come out later in the week and allow us to dig a little bit deeper on particular topics as it either relates to our asset management style from one of our companies or because we want to check in on the chronicling of one of the greatest bubbles in financial market history. How would you distinguish the two? If you had to explain to somebody in short order the difference between the two reports. Uh, well, I mean, one's page and a half long and the other's 25 pages long. Well, That's probably okay, the so easiest the credit way bubble of bulletin, yeah. You, but there's you a, can get a lot out of the first three or four pages of the credit bubble bulletin. Yeah, there's a nice yeah. summary there at the front of credit bubble bulletin. And one of the things that I really enjoy about what we have on our wealth management site under the credit bubble bulletin section, um, Doug curates a news feed there and you get to see articles from the financial times and reuters and dozens of different the stuff sources. he's reading the stuff he's reading and finding important so consider the three hours that it would take to find the articles and read them versus the 10 minutes that it takes to go to that site read the page and go directly to the articles. Again, there's a tremendous time saving here. And it's one of the most valuable. Th- I mean, Doug is a, I'm grateful for the effort that he puts in every day. This is seven days a week. It's a labor of love. We talked about uh, that last night about a, a friend of yours that you went to school with in seventh grade. Yeah. A lot of people want to be an artist professionally. This guy can't it, help it. It can't help it. It's a labor of love. It has to happen. Well, Doug would do this whether he was paid or not. And he loves it. Yeah. He loves it. 
So both of these shed light on our team interactions, because I think between Heart Asset Insights and Credible Bulletin, they crystallize the internal conversations and concerns that cross our desks, that enter into the debates that we have on a regular basis. Okay, so give me an example from this week. Uh, Z1 report. Uh, you know, Doug covers it in the Credit Bubble Bulletin, but it's going to be highlighted in the conversations that we have at a very high level as we're looking at macro trends. Let me give you a sampling, just kind of cherry pick a few numbers. And if you want to look at all of them, you know, again, go back to this weekend's read. The past quarter, so we're talking about Q2, we have equity values which surged $5.7 trillion. This is in the U.S. to a record $75.39 trillion. Compare that to total equity values at $27 trillion in the year 2007 and $20.95 trillion in the year 2000. Those are both cycle peaks. Hmm. That's why we reference them. Hmm. We are now at equity values of 332% versus GDP. Wow. Okay. I'm thinking Buffett here because yeah. this is what Buffett looks at the most. Of course. And the cycle peaks previously were 188% or 210%. So 332 is a significant number. And why do we look at these? Well, again, I know numbers can run together. Mm -hmm. But on this metric, stock market capitalization versus GDP, 332% versus 188 or 210 Currently, stocks are 50% more overvalued than the last two cycle peaks. Is, is that a nice little nutshell takeaway? Let's just define what we're talking about. A stock market should actually reflect economic productivity, and that's what GDP is. Economic okay. activity, the measure of total economic activity, that's GDP. And if the stock market is way, way more than that, okay, higher than what you're talking about, Buffett basically says, no, I'll just stay in cash. You're paying premiums for the activity that's being done. Now, traditionally, Speculative activity. Yeah, and traditionally you make money when you buy things discounted, not paying premiums. So, yeah. I, so this, let's just hang out on this statistic because this is Warren Buffett's go-to gauge for over and undervaluation. If, if stocks outstrip, if they surpass the engine of growth, again, GDP, what they derive value from, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Don't buy them. When stocks are a fraction of the size of that growth engine, they should be bought with both fists. So no surprise. I mean, in the same period of time, you get household net worth, you bring in real estate to complement financial assets. Also at record levels, 623% of GDP versus 445 and 491% previously. Hmm. So there's Buffett sitting on $144 billion in cash, not buying with both fists. Communicate anything to you? Does it mean anything to you? You know, it's also scary. If he's sitting on $144 billion in cash, he's not keeping up with inflation. He's going backwards and he's finding it worth more than owning stocks right now hitting all-time highs. Imagine that. Many believe Warren Buffett to be one of the smartest asset allocators. He'll take a 3% loss to inflation, 5% loss to inflation, depending on what he's earning on his money. Right. Rather than take market risk, what does that say about his attitude and his disposition towards market risk at this point? The everything bubble is still in play and saner angels are still on the sidelines. It's noteworthy that last week we did see the worst outflow in three years. $28.6 billion pulled from U.S. equity funds. Okay, So if we go back to the comments from last week on options volume when we talked to Bill King, we're talking about crazy volumes expecting the markets to go higher. Well, last week we had the first trickle out of stocks, and it was actually the largest outflow we've had in three years, $28.6 pulled from U.S. equity funds. A trickle could become a torrential flood, and, and frankly, only time and policy responses will tell. Okay, so that's Z1. 
But what else do you guys talk about when you meet? Yeah, the last number to ponder came from the rest of world holdings of U.S. assets. So if you go back in time, 2004, we surpassed 10 trillion for the first time. This is every other country, every other investor, every other money center, whether it's London or Santiago, everywhere. 10 trillion in aggregate U.S. assets held someplace else. So we went to a fresh high in Q2 this year, 43.59 trillion. It's 43 trillion. This includes stocks. This is corporate bonds. This is treasuries. This is everything. And you hope that the current holders are happy holders and don't become sellers, even marginally so. And, and the, the real, the real, <laughs> just for perspective, I mean, yeah, we went from 10 trillion to 43 trillion in a 16 year time frame, but we added 13 trillion in the last 10 quarters. I mean, wow. we're ramping up. Wow. Everybody's it's buying an acceleration. Everything. It's an acceleration. And one thing is true. If, if you've looked at markets for any length of time, rate of change or acceleration, momentum, you can gauge kind of where you're at, depending on how vertical the hockey stick is. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> this is this is the everything hockey stick. Yeah, Dave, I, I hear you. You know, but when you all meet, everything can't be a threat. And this is the interesting thing about money management or just actually life. You have to look at what the real threat is and ignore the non-real threat. And, you know, it's interesting. The last few weeks, Evergrande has been in the news. And the size of it is huge. You've talked about it. This, you know, a lot of people talked about how this could take the Chinese financial system down. But is it a real threat or is it something that China as a whole can just go ahead and put money into and, and bail out? A little bit like the too big to fail maneuvers that we've seen here in America. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that it could be Lehman, part two, the okay. Asian version of, of a Lehman moment. On the other hand, we also have a, a polished policy suite, which the Chinese may have learned something from in that 2008 to 2009 timeframe and may employ. Stephen Roach comments on China that the government will spend to fill the gaps. So if Evergrande implodes, you're going to have some losses. But on that front, he's not particularly worried. Hmm. Because he thinks they have sufficient capital to fill the gaps. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But his big takeaway was what we talked about in previous shows, Kevin, the common prosperity. That's not a passing fad. Right. And that when you say common prosperity, that is a title. That's Xi Jinping basically labeling a new economic plan. Yeah, it's the wave of the future, and it is contrary to the market dynamism and entrepreneurial expressions we've seen over the past four decades in China. So anything that we've experienced from Deng Xiaoping to the present will be different going forward in China. So perhaps we should reflect further on China's total contribution to global GDP and what what healthy expectations could be uh, from the World Bank, from the IMF, from the OECD countries to say, what are we going to see in terms of U.S. growth, European growth, Chinese growth? Because whatever Grant does represent is is a major sea change where they've ginned up a tremendous amount of growth on the basis of malinvestment in real estate. Now some of that gets to be unwound and they're going a different direction. So part of our conversations internally, you know, <laughs> China's total contribution to global GDP is one thing, but bear in mind, they've also been the largest buyer of commodities on a global basis. If the engine of growth for China is changing, it certainly impacts 
certain commodities, right? So we have to look at things from a portfolio allocation perspective. You have to start seeing things from the standpoint of differentiated supply and demand dynamics from one commodity to the next. Differentiation is really key. One of the things you've tried to do is talk to the guys who were sort of boots on the ground. You know, you, you quoted Stephen Roach, who, of course, uh, he was with Morgan Stanley for years, and that was the China side of things, right? I mean, he was he was in charge there. But you know some pretty eclectic guys, and Michael Pettis is one who lives in Asia. Uh, he owns, I think, uh, I haven't been there, but he owns a, it's a, like a disco-like club downstairs, and then his office upstairs yeah, you, you had a drink with him, didn't you? And he just, sure. but his insights into China. I mean, I think I don't wasn't know if he's born still, in Spain. And I don't I, know if he's still running the nightclub. Okay, but he he was. He kind of fancied himself as starting a, a a new music scene, global music scene, and you know participating in running a label and and but yeah. He, when he looks at economics, it's smart guy. Yeah, it's a little bit like the guy who's standing in that one spot with the elephant that you've never seen before. He right? was an emerging market bond trader. Okay. for years. And, you know, now teaches finance. And he's focused on the five-year plan. China has five-year plans and they're, they're patient. So to some degree, you could say that his, his views currently on China mirror Stephen Roach's. Um, you get the five-year plan coming up. It's 2022. And between the PBOC and the Politburo, they'll play, they will pay for stability between here and there. Okay. So this is the everything buyer. It's just a different way of doing it. Yeah. So what is it going to take, you know, and, and yes, they're pumping the brakes and they're going to, you know, have this policy and that policy, which tighten things up. And then, you know, last week they threw in another $71 billion into the banking system. So, hmm. you know, on the one hand, they're tightening the screws on, on this segment of the economy or, or this particular business community. And then on the other hand, they're reliquifying, you know, yeah. 17 billion here. Easy come, aggregate. easy come, easy come. Easy come. <laughs> but right. I mean, what we have is cracks in the Chinese credit markets. They're there. If they widen the cost to maintain financial stability, we're talking about requiring additional hundreds of billions, likely trillions of dollars. Right. And so we can also look at 2022 post their five-year plan and begin to see currency trends, the RMB and, and, and emerging market currencies uh, being very dramatically impacted. And, of course, there's commodity trends, which we talked about just a minute ago, where things like industrials, that's not the same as energy commodities. Iron ore stands out like a sore thumb, given the the, the consumption dynamics that we've had in the past with China versus what they might be, assuming that you have a change in the real estate sector within that country. So for the listener who says, yeah, but we're talking, I mean, that's China. That's a long ways away. I've never even been to China, they say. Does that affect the inflation here on our shores? Well, I mean, a massive Chinese reflation, it's in the larger context of already heightened global inflation pressures. That's already here. So we, we, you know, the OECD chief economist last week said something to the effect that, that managing inflation would be very difficult for policymakers, a difficult balancing act. And it is global. We're experiencing it everywhere. Not everyone is particularly cognizant of what the man in the street is experiencing. I I, I got this picture from a Financial Times article. The ECB has promised to vigilantly watch for any signs of supply-side bottlenecks and higher wages driving prices higher than expected. Hmm. 
So they're going to watch out for it and they'll let oh, you know what happens. So they're telling you that they'll tell you when they hear the train coming through town. But I think the train's passing. It's like they haven't left the house for 12 months. Yeah. It's like they're still in lockdown. We'll, we'll listen for that inflation. We'll let you know when it becomes a problem. Now, there's two things this last week which may end up being significant. Again, time and policy responses will tell. But we had two things that stood out. And again, this this is sort of front and center in our asset management conversations this week. Change in market internals. The first was a shift in corporate credit. And the second was a shift in sovereign debt, particularly credit default swaps that apply both to U.S. corporate bonds and specifically Chinese sovereign paper. And that's the cost of insuring volatility, basically, on... Cost to insure against default. We saw credit default swap prices rise and then this week remain elevated in both cases. Same Mm -hmm. to this week. So this is key because we haven't really seen much happen with U.S. corporate credit. For all the volatility we've seen on and off and on and off, you could look at a chart of the VIX and we've volatility had volatility. Yeah. 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 But we've had volatility as VIX measures put call ratios and in, 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 in volatility there. But, but in terms of the market internals, no one has been concerned until last week and it right. carried over into this week and they're buying insurance the first time that you've seen a significant bump in the insurance costs for corporate credit and for chinese sovereign debt just happened and again will it continue we'll have to see but uh, you know if there is further deterioration on those two fronts we could be launching into a real market squall okay so for the person who's actually analyzed how the fed makes decisions they're gonna have to start analyzing again because some of these guys were caught are we allowed to say this? They, they were caught trading the very things that they were printing money and buying with Fed money, but it was in their personal portfolios. Dave, is is that legal? You know, I, I think you have to go back to reading Animal Farm to recognize that oh, more there, people. Yeah, some, some pigs are some, more equal more than equal. others. Yeah. yeah? yeah. So I, no, it's it's funny how fast Kaplan and Rosengren. Uh, walked away from their Fed positions. Oh, they've got health issues. They, well, yeah. Yeah. One's got kidney issues. I don't know if that means he peed himself when he found he was going to get in trouble uh, for insider trading and the equivalent thereof. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know. At Let the me be mighty fair. Fed, at the mighty Fed, you've got insider trading within the presidents of the they're mighty not, Fed. They're not going to call it insider trading. Of course not. It's going to be personal portfolio allocations. In the case of Kaplan, it's 27 different positions, each a million dollars. And hmm. we're talking about a sizable speculation on market outcomes. But isn't it interesting, coming back to where we started, the Fed hopes to determine market outcomes. Hmm. So how is it that people at the Fed are betting on market outcomes they believe they can control? Wow. I think it's actually quite convenient that they're leaving sort of exit stage right at this point. Because the realities of market dominance and market power and the humiliation of that market pretense currently held by the Fed. That's what's about to be on display. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com, and you can call us at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.